Let's turn to Matthew 18. We'll find the words of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout our text. Uh, it is purely Him that is talking this morning in our text. Matthew 18. So last week we introduced this chapter. It's a new chapter for us. And today we'll move forward only officially four verses. But to hit these four verses, we need to back up just a couple. Uh, so I'll actually read four and five along with verses six through nine. Six through nine is what we'll mainly deal with today. Good to see you this morning, and thank you for those that are joining us online. Uh, Matthew 18. So Jesus is in a house. He's had a conversation with Peter about taxes. I don't know if Peter's already left and caught a fish and found a coin in his mouth to pay for their taxes, but the disciples have made their way back to this house in Capernaum. So here's our setting. We're probably somewhere two to three weeks before the Lord will be crucified. He's been warning the disciples repeatedly that he's going to be delivered over to the hands of sinful men. He will suffer many things at the hands of sinful men. They will put him to death, and he will rise again the third day. He's told this multiple times. They almost seem to get it for a little bit, but then a few days goes by, and they divert right back into an old way of thinking. Listen very carefully. So this week I heard a, a, a preacher was speaking on a podcast again and was playing. And the way he worded this scene, he was on a previous chapter or a couple of chapters. The way he worded it is that the disciples had bad discipleship. Israel was permeated with bad discipleship. There was bad discipleship being taught. They had the wrong view of things. He alluded to it as being concrete that had settled into the disciples and into the people of Israel. Listen, the Lord repeatedly tries to break up the concrete. And just when you think he's breaking up the concrete, it settles right back in and they fall to an old way of thinking. He's told them they're headed, they know something big is coming in just a couple of weeks, the Passover's nearing. They can tell it's going to be momentous and big. Jesus has tried to tell them what's coming, but they keep reverting back to the old discipleship, the wrong way of thinking. So much so that it leads them to argue. They literally are arguing this argument. They come in the house, what do you fellas been talking about? They don't want to answer, they're quiet. He pushes further. What were y'all discussing? Come to find out they had not been discussing. They were arguing this question. Which one of them is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They think they're going to Jerusalem. They think Jesus is going to set up the visible, consummated kingdom on earth. And he's going to begin ruling and reigning from Jerusalem. That's still yet to come. They think it was going to happen 2,000 years ago. They want to know which one of us is the greatest. The Lord shocks them by bringing out a little child. The idea is a two, three, four-year-old sets a little child, little boy, little boy in the middle of them. And then he says, I'm going to read verse 3. If you have your Bible open, you can see this. It will not be on the screen. Watch what he says in verse 3 after putting the little child. He says, truly I say to you. So truly, he's drawing attention. Truly I say to you, unless you turn. So it has to be a turning. We know that this is in the mind at first. The turning comes out in the life if it really happens in the mind. It always comes out in the, in the life if it really happens in the mind. But it begins in the mind. He says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children. He's just put, you want to know who the greatest, which one of you is the greatest? Puts a little child. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You guys are counting your chickens before they hatch. You guys are wondering how great you're going to be in the kingdom. You need to make sure that you're even going to get into the kingdom. And he says the way to do that is to become like children. Last week, 
we had to ask a question. What does becoming like children mean? Because Jesus does not tell us what it means. So I offered to you confidently what I think at least two things are that we have to become like children. Do you remember what those are? Don't, you don't have to answer out loud. Do you remember what is it about a child that to even enter the future kingdom of God that you must become like a little child in this way? Well, we know they're not innocent. It's not saying become innocent. So here's what we concluded. You must reach a point where you believe, children believe what their parents say. And so if you want to go to heaven, you have to believe what our heavenly father says about how to get into the kingdom. And what the Bible says is the only way to get into the kingdom, according to God himself, says you must put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, that his death on the cross is sufficient to pay for your sins. Exactly what these five baptismal candidates confessed with word and action this morning. You have to believe that. And you cannot come bringing any of your own actions or works. Because the second thing that a child is like is they know they're dependent. A child knows they depend on mom and dad. And in the same way, to get into the kingdom, you must be like a little child coming to God's like, God, I am spiritually bankrupt. I have nothing to give. All I can re- do is receive your salvation. I'm not bringing anything to the equation. I'm totally the taker like a little child. That's what you have to do to become a Christian, what we call a Christian. They did not have that wording at this point in time. Now, with that in mind, look at verse 4. He's now going to officially answer the question that they ask, which one of us is going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Verse 4, whoever, we preached on 4 and 5 last week, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Little bitty boy in a room full of 13 men at least, and no doubt others, 13 men who had performed miracles and crowds just stared at awe in them as they walked through the street. This little boy no doubt sees how people look at these 13 men, and in particular to Jesus. But this little boy knows he's the most insignificant person in the room. And the Lord says, you want to be great? You have to start thinking like this little child. Verse 4 again. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That's who will be the greatest. The ones who will be the greatest are those who are not even trying to be the greatest. They don't see themselves as the greatest. They see themselves as the most insignificant. Now, I do want to ask your help. Mark chapter 9 gave us the outward sign of inward humility that the Lord called for. Matthew doesn't record it, but Mark does. The Lord says, here's how you will know that you really have this inward humility. What idea am I talking about? You will be willing to serve serve. If you're unwilling to serve, then that's because you're proud and not humble. If you're humble, then it always leads to service. Verse 5. One way of serving was given to us last week. Whoever receives one such child in my name, Jesus says, receives me. Whoever receives one such, not necessarily this child, but it could be any child, but today we're expanding that even further as we did at the end of last week. Watch it again. Jesus says, whoever receives, welcomes, the idea of ministers to, whoever receives one such child in my name, the idea as I'm doing it to them in your name, Lord, as if I'm doing it to you, Jesus says, receives me. You receive them, you welcome them, you're receiving and welcoming me. That's how I take it, the Lord is saying. That's a strong implication of a blessing attached to receiving and welcoming and ministering to children, literally, but we're going beyond that, as we did last week, to not just physical children, but spiritual children of God. Where do we see that? Look at verse 5 again. Now let's go to today's text. 
Whoever receives one such child, one such child in my name receives me, but, today here comes the negative side of this, whoever causes, hear the Lord's words, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me. Listen, not all little children believe in Christ. So we know he's now moved beyond little, literal little children. Verse 6. But, so whoever receives them receives me. I receive it as to me. Verse 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him, better, there's 6A is causing one of these little ones who believe in Jesus to sin, causing them to sin, there's 6a. 6b says it would be better for him to have a great, notice the word great, not just millstone, a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. He's not just saying it would be better to have a millstone hung around your neck and to be drowned in the sea. No, a great millstone to be hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. That's better than offending and causing one of these little ones who believe in Jesus, causing them to sin. Verse 7, Jesus says, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. That's very broad. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come. It is necessary that temptations come. But... Did you catch it? Watch this. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Woe to the world, but woe to the one by whom the temptations come. And then he gets it personal to all of us. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, this is the running theme. You better not cause one of these little ones who trust me to sin. Now verse 8, if your hand, personal to ourselves, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Cut it off. Throw it away. Get rid of it. It is better. Here we go with the better again. It is better for you to enter life. He's almost saying that as if this life is not really started life yet. He's talking that like life is coming. It is better for you, this is the Lord saying this, wake up Jeff, pay attention. It is better for you to enter life crippled and lame than with two hands and two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire, the Lord's words. And, not just hands and feet, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell, we just heard the eternal hell, than to be thrown into the hell of fire. Notice with me three things this morning. Number one, refuse to be a source of temptation. This is what the Lord is trying to tell us. Listen, so he's talking to you. You this morning, everyone that is listening to this and myself, the Lord is challenging us, refuse, make up your mind this morning that you will refuse to be a source of temptation. So who is he talking about a source of temptation to who? Verse number six says, 
but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me. So what does that mean? He's no longer talking about just little children. He's now talking about people. Here's the word we now use. They didn't use it then. Christians of any age, the Lord is saying, do not cause one of these little ones of any age. This is a person who is now a spiritual child of God because they made themselves, they took an attitude of like a literal child. I'm the dependent one. I don't have anything to bring for salvation. I just have to receive. I can only receive your grace. You do all the saving. But I believe in what you said about salvation. I'm trusting Jesus' death as sufficient for me. When a person becomes humble like that, like a little child, then they become the spiritual child of God. And God says, Jesus says, anyone who offends them and causes them to sin, it would be better for them than if they were to have a large, great millstone hung around their neck and to be cast into the sea. What's Jesus teaching? Glance very quickly. Look at verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Do you see that? Everybody see that? You receive them, it counts as if you did it for me. But then verse 6, whoever causes one of these little ones to, who believe in me to sin, then it would be better for this to happen. That's telling me there's a dynamic that runs all through the New Testament, and it's this. Jesus is so close to those who put their faith in him that if another person does something good for someone who trusts Jesus, then the Lord counts the good thing that the other person did as if they did it to him. And last week, I read that as if there's a blessing attached. And here's why that means a lot. Because the one that you're blessing, that he receives blessing this person as if you're blessing him and receiving and welcoming him, that person has all the resources in the universe. And he's saying, I'm watching and keeping tabs. You receive and welcome these little ones, you're receiving and welcoming me. But he also says, if anyone over here harms one of mine, then I take it as if you're harming me. And again, not only does he have all resources, he is the all mighty and that's not the person you want to be offending so that's our lesson for like over half of this message is refuse to be a source of temptation Saul of Tarsus is on the on the road to Damascus and Jesus invades him and reveals himself knocks him off his animal he blinds him for three days he asks him a question what was that question say it loudly if you know it Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He was on his way to go persecute Christians. Remember, watch, the Lord is so closely connected to those who put their faith in him that anything done to them is done to him. And the Lord says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul may have been thinking, I'm not persecuted. Yes, you are. You've persecuted me. So listen carefully. Beware harming one of God's children. You say, I am one of God's children. I don't care who you are. Beware harming one of God's children. When you cause one of God's children to sin, you are harming them. You say, they're committing the sin, but if you're throwing a stumbling block by your life and actions and words that's helping them to trip up and fall, that's the idea of temptations here. If you're helping cause them to sin, then the Lord is also going to hold, they're responsible, but he's also going to hold you and I responsible for us causing them to sin. Do not cause them to sin. Because, you say, how is that harming them? Because sin creates a distance between them and their Lord's fellowship. A Christian can never lose their salvation. They'll never lose their relationship with God. But sin does cause us to have a strained and distant fellowship, and so sin harms us. Don't harm God's people by causing them to sin. Look at verse 7. Verse number 7. 
Woe to the world for temptations to sin. Woe to the world for temptations. The idea of temptations is what I just gave. It's to put a stumbling block. I want to borrow. I don't see one somewhere. I thought we have. They're all cleaned up. I want you just to imagine for a moment. I'm probably off camera, which is fine. What if this just sat here all the time? And I come up here every week and I try to, trying to preach. And Don't be a stumbling block. Don't put something in the way of other people. Get it out of the way. Don't you be the one that is causing, somebody's going to get really mad because I just took their spot. It's all right. Don't be the one who's causing other people to trip up. Woe to the world for sin. Listen, the world woe means judgment is coming. Jesus is saying to the world as a whole, judgment is coming. The Lord of the universe is saying the day's going to come. I'm going to judge this world. I'm going to judge the world. But it goes further than that. Look at verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. You keep causing sin. Then he says, for it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptations come. One more time. For it is necessary that temptations come. I wrestled with that a little bit. And finally I read something that kind of caused that to come alive to me. So I want you to insert this word in the idea of necessary. So woe to the world for temptations to sin. The world is a place of stumbling block. The world is a place of temptation for God's people. Can we just acknowledge that right out of the gate? This world is a hard place to live because it's constantly trying to tempt us toward materialism. It's drawing you. More things. You need more and more things. Discontent. Don't be happy with the things you have. You need more things. Some people literally go to school to get a degree and how to market to us so that we'll not be happy with the things we have. We need more things. This world is constantly tempting and trying to throw a stumbling block to us. You should be afraid and you should be filled with anxiety. Fear and anxiety are sin. It's throwing sin and stumbling blocks before us. And the Lord is saying, woe to this world. It's constantly trying to reach out. Lust. It wants us to lust after things that are not ours to have. It wants to have lust of the heart that carries out into action. The world is constantly appealing and tempting and throwing a stumbling block before us. But the Lord says, it is necessary. It is inevitable. That's the idea. It is necessary means that this world is inevitably a source of temptation for those of us who try to live godly. But notice the rest of the verse quickly. Look at the verse 7. For it is necessary that temptations come. In other words, this world is an ungodly place. It is going to be a source of temptation for Christians as long as we're here in this form of this world because it is a fallen world. It is necessary. It is inevitable that it's going to be that way. But woe to the one. If you're taking notes, write this down. This world is inevitably a source of temptation for those who try to live godly. Yet that inevitability of the world as a whole does not lessen the responsibility of individual people who cause the temptations. The world's going to be a place of temptation, but that does not lessen the responsibility of each individual person. In my mind, I'm picturing a riot that has taken place. I want you to think of this. Picture a riot because about a year ago we saw lots of this happening. Remember that? It's nighttime. You're in these cities, and people are wearing black, and fires are burning, and people are just moving in mobs, 
and there's chanting, and there's lots of things, and police are like four blocks away. You remember that? Police are four blocks away. They're not going to go in there. They're setting up a barricade. You can't come any further than this, but we're kind of just yielding that territory. What happens inevitably in those rioting mobs? What starts happening? Starts with an L. Looting, inevitably. I want you to picture if you're in this mob that is out of control and all of a sudden storefronts and glass start breaking and people are running in and they're grabbing clothes and shoes and electronics and jewelry. What may run through your mind at that point is this thought, very logical. Somebody's going to steal all this stuff. Might as well be me. Now, I'm not a thief. I don't want you to think about me as a thief, but somebody's getting all this stuff. This place is getting wiped out tonight, so it might as well, it's going to get stolen. Might as well be me. You know what the Lord's saying in this passage? What will not hold up on the day of judgment is, Lord, the world is a place of temptation. It was inevitable. So I just couldn't help it. Everyone was doing it. The Lord's answer is, that will not fly. That is not an acceptable answer. The Lord's saying, you, each individual... I know what you've done, I see what you've done, and I'm going to judge you for what you have done. So the world, yes, will be judged as a whole. But the way the Lord judges the world is by judging individuals for what they've done themselves and for how they have tempted Christians to sin. Write this thought down. I did not put this in our text to run to. If you want to write out to the side, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I'll just generically give you the following note. Christians, I'm talking to us for a moment. Because you say, what's verse 6? Who is it talking to? It says, but whoever, whoever, that's broad, whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, then it would be better for this to happen. Whoever. So the New Testament warns us Christians not to defraud each other. Not to defraud each other. To defraud means don't take advantage of one another. Do not exploit one another. And particularly in the setting there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 5, before and after, a lot of sexual sin is being played into. Thessalonica was a very sexually perverted city in that day. And so Paul is writing to these new Christians, do not defraud your brothers and sisters. You say, what does that mean? Don't defraud them, exploit, take advantage, pull them down, throw a stumbling block in their way by stirring up wrong emotions on the inside, by stirring up sin within a Christian. So ladies and gentlemen, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, do not throw stumbling blocks and stir up sin within God's people. If you do, the Lord is watching, and you will be judged for it. Don't do that. Do not let yourself be a source of temptation. Before we move to our second point this morning, can I flesh that out for a moment? I'm going to give you nine things. I'll hit them quickly. Don't you just think about this. We as brothers and sisters in Christ are not to defraud one another. We're not to stir up sin within one another. I'm going to give you nine, but we literally could have 25. If we were to just sit, you guys could add many, many more. Here's one. In Anderson County this morning, there are many people who are alcoholics. They're drunks. That's the old way of saying it. They're alcoholics. Someone introduced them to alcohol. You know what this means? Don't you be the one who introduces anyone else by your words or by your actions or by your lifestyle that introduces someone to drinking and they end up becoming a drunk. Our county has many, many people who are addicted to drugs. Someone was the first person who introduced them to that, who gave them a hit. There are many, many thousands of people 
Some sitting here this morning who are addicted to pornography. And someone introduced them to that. Someone gave them access to that. Someone said, dude, you got to come over here look at this. Here, take this home. Go to this site. And they do all those things. And next thing you know, the person ends up addicted to that. So don't be the one who ends up causing one of God's people to be introduced to something that becomes a stronghold in their life. Don't be that person. Nor be this person, the one who supplies it. And I know the word on the street. It goes like this. Jeff, you need to wake up and get in the real world. I'm going to tell you something, buddy. If someone's an alcoholic, they're going to get alcohol. Number two, if someone's an addict, they're going to get their drugs, whether it be something on the street or prescriptions. They're going to get it. And if someone's addicted to pornography, they're going to get it. Now, here's the thing. Whoever's supplying those things is going to make a lot of money, so we might as well make money on it. They're going to get it. Woe to you if you're the one who introduces or supplies people to sin. Woe upon you. Here's another. Never commit fornication. Let me just tell you, don't commit fornication. Sex outside of marriage. Sex before marriage. Don't commit fornication. But if you are dating a Christian, you especially better not entice them to commit fornication. Jesus is serious. He says it would be better for you to have a millstone hung around your neck and to be cast into the depths of the sea and drowned. That would be better than you constantly enticing them to sin by committing fornication. Don't don't commit adultery, but you especially better not commit adultery with someone who is a Christian. You better stay away from that. The Lord means business. He's not playing games here. That's what I got this week. Like, man, this is some serious wording the Lord is using. This is graphic. Jesus is trying to get our attention. Here's one. Do not intentionally dress in a way that is provocative and stirs up lust in your brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't do it. The Lord is watching. You say, well, Jeff, everybody in the culture, true. The, woe to the world, but woe to the one. Don't be the one. Don't take the attitude. Somebody's going to steal all this stuff anyway. I'm just going to go get, get a few things. Don't let it be you. Don't let it be you. This is one of those uh, Sundays where we preach on sin. And they're not usually don't make people feel great. He sees what you're wearing. He knows what's in your heart, and he knows the damage you're doing, whether you know it or not. Don't be that person. Don't you be them. Somebody's going to be that. Don't let it be you. Here's one. Don't use words that you know stir up fear and discontent and anxiety. Bragging, bragging, bragging all that you have so that everybody around you feels terrible for what they don't have. Don't let that be you. Give thanks for what the Lord's given you. But don't come across that. Don't let your words cause anxiety and fear. Don't be that person. In spoken word, here's one. In print, don't be the person who puts social media posts that also constantly. There's some people who just like, and I'm not even in the world. I'm, I praise God that I'm so slow and I have so little time. I don't have time to be on social media. It's like a good thing for me. It would probably be a trap and it would be terrible. And I'd end up coming unprepared and you guys would be really happy because my hour and eight minute sermons would become 23 minute sermons you'd probably love that but some people just put these posts and all it does is stirs up anxiety or unrighteous anger don't let that be you don't be that person don't encourage a believer to cheat or to lie on their taxes hey i found a loophole this will work you ought to try it 
Don't be the person who encourages believers to steal, literally by taking or by stealing time. Most places have the person on the job site that when the manager or supervisor or the boss isn't there, they're going to let everybody know. Hey, they're gone. She's not here. He's not coming in. He won't be here until after lunch, a.k.a. chill, because I'm going to do it. And I really appreciate it if you would do it, because if you're out there working like normal, then I'm going to feel guilty. I'd really like you to kind of tone it down like me because the boss isn't here today. Don't be the person who leads other people to sin I'm thinking of R.C. Sproul, and he talked about this idea, and I think I forgot to put it up there earlier. I apologize. The idea of temptations means to intentionally set a trap. Did y'all take that note earlier? Thankfully, they were covering my bases there. It means to intentionally set a trap. Sproul offered two examples of that. He says when you go to Europe, and some of you know exactly what he's talking about. There's a dynamic if you're in a large crowd and you're out on the streets. You better be careful about something that goes on a lot. Especially, he says, if you're in Eastern Europe. Does anybody know the dynamic that he's talking about? If you're in Eastern Europe and you're out in large crowds, you better kind of be aware that this crime takes place. What is it? Pickpocketing. So he looked a little deeper into that. And you know what he found out? A lot of it that happens is little children. Little bit of kids. And you know who teaches them? Their mom and their dad. Their mom and dad train little children, literally what verse 6 says not to do. Their mom and dad are teaching them, perfecting them, making them expert pickpockets so they can go out and steal. So the child is stealing, and the child will have to answer for that, but literally they are led into it by their parents. Here's another one he gave. Sproul talks about when he was at a church in Cincinnati on staff in his earlier ministry. He's on staff, and part of his duties was to have a young adult's Sunday school. And he went in there one, one morning, a Sunday morning, and one of the young adults, college age, asked about the reliability of the New Testament. So he answered the question. A couple weeks later, another one of the young students asked about the reliability of the text behind the New Testament. So he answered it again. A few weeks later goes by, has another student comes in, wants to know, is the New Testament reliable? So he answered it again. And finally, he's like, what is going on? He found out that all three of them went to the University of Cincinnati, and apparently they all had the same professor who made it his business to go out of his way to tear down the reliability of the New Testament and to tear down people's faith in God. And by doing so, he was harming young, weak, new-in-the-faith Christians can I just tell you the tone of this text is that hell will be especially hot for those who teach in such a way as to tear down God's people's faith in the Word of God and in God. Don't ever let that be you, and by God's grace, I never want to be the person who's... I want to be the person who teaches in a way that our faith is built up in God, not in a way that's torn down. A couple more. Some new Christian, young Christian, they're zealous. They want to take a step for God. Don't you be the one who comes and throws cold water on it because you're apathetic and they're zealous. They want to do something. They want to take a step and you, no, 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 whoa, whoa, here's what you need to do. Don't be that person. You're harming them. You're leading them to sin by disobeying God. And then one more that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, literally two weeks ago. Christians... Never be the one who insists on living out your liberty in Christ. You say, Jeff, it's our liberty in Christ. There's nothing wrong with this activity. We could go into all of those things that that fits. Don't be the Christian who lives out your liberty in Christ in such a way that you know causes a younger, newer, weaker Christian to commit sin because 
They do the same thing that you're doing, but in their mind, they've always thought it was sin. But you doing it, it's kind of giving them confidence to commit sin against their own conscience. For them, it is sin. For you, it may not be sin. You remember what we said? Jesus went out of his way not to cause other... He went out of his way to do what he didn't have to do to not cause other people to commit acts of sin. As the Son of God, he did not have to pay the what? Y'all help me. He didn't have to pay the what? He don't have to pay the temple tax. This is his father's house. So God put a tax on the, tw- on the Jews 20 years old and up in the land. They have to pay a tax every year for this amount of money. Jesus is the son. Sons are exempt from taxes. I don't have to pay it. Jesus paid the temple tax so that no one who was supposed to pay it, for them it would be sin not to pay it. He pays it, not because he has to, but so that they cannot use him as an excuse not to pay the tax. For them it would be sin. For him it was not. What does he do? He goes the extra mile because he loves people more than his own freedom. Write this note down before we go to the second thought this morning. Whoever, in verse 6, you see that? But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Who is the whoever? I'm going to offer to you that whoever includes the saved and the unsaved. Whoever includes the saved and the unsaved. Well, hold that note. Don't, yeah, thank you. Don't put it up just yet. You can start writing it. It includes the saved and the unsaved. Now, catch what Jesus is saying to saved and unsaved. If you're going to live a life that leads God's people into sin, it would be better for you that a millstone is hung around your neck and you drowned in the depth of the sea. That would be better. Notice he's not saying... If you're going to lead God's people into sin, listen, he's not saying it would be better that you just go ahead and die. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it would be better for you to go ahead and die a horrible, terrifying death than live a life that leads God's people into sin. And so write this down. Even a saved person who chooses to live a sinful life that leads other people into sin is better off dead. You're like, Jeff, now that's the strangest note in the county this morning. That probably is. But that's what the text is teaching us. Jesus is saying 6B is better than 6A. Literally, a Christian who's choosing, just going to live a sinful life, you are better off dead than continuing to live in this world with a sinful life. Number two this morning. Write this thought. It's verse 8 and 9. Ruthlessly remove your own temptations. Don't be a source of temptation to others. Ruthlessly remove your own temptations. So what's verse 8 and 9? Let's read those again. Look at it. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. So right out of the gate, I need you to get personally engaged. Here's the thought. These two verses speak of the ruthlessness with which we need to come against any sin that is trying to rule over us. This shows the ruthlessness that we have to go after any kind of sin that's trying to rule over us. So here's what I need you to do. You may come up with a blank, but some of you will be like, oh, I know mine, or I know my few Here's my question. What Christian 
or unsaved person, either one, here's my question. What sin is trying to rule over your life? Get it in mind and set it in the middle of the table and let's put the bright light on it because we need to have that in our mind as we're talking about this because we're talking about we are supposed to be ruthless in getting this out of our life. I mean, whatever it takes, ruthless. Got to get rid of it. What is yours? Don't say it out loud, but in your mind, you're like, oh, I know what it is. This one thing, maybe it just started this year or maybe you've been fighting this thing for five years or maybe it is 10 years it may be anger, it may be lust, it may be fear, it may be something you do that other people can see. You, you may be a thief, whatever it is. Put that under the light, or you may say, wow, I've kind of got two or three of those things. Or you know what yours is. Bring it out. Where I worked previous to here, I remember my office, where I was at. I remember which of the offices that it was. I remember that it was the day before Thanksgiving, and I've shared this before. I'll not give as many details. It was the day before Thanksgiving, probably 11 or 12 years ago, and a former student of mine that I never really had a strong connection. It was the strangest thing. Before we go on holiday break at the Christian school, he was no longer at the Christian school. He came and sat in my office, and we started talking about his soul. He was worried about his soul. And I'm going to tell you, I sat there and watched conviction. I mean, this young man, early 20s, was just under conviction. I mean, his head was down. And he'd look up, and you, there was a battle raging. And the more we talked, the deeper the conviction, man. He was, he was just being drawn to Christ, but he wouldn't do it. Finally, hit the point, and I'm like, so-and-so, what's, what's holding you back? And he didn't know how to word it. I, fed, I said, finally, I said, is there some sin that you have in your life? And he realized, absolutely, there's a sin, two of them, in fact, that were in his life that he did not want to give up. And he knows to come to Christ, he's to repent of his sin and forsake them and not like bring them in. And he was battling and battling and say, what were those two sins? The way he worded it was women and drinking. That's what he called it. He said, I said, what are they? I said, let's identify them so we at least know what we're talking about. And he's he just kind of leaning sideways and he just kind of, women. I said, is that it? And drinking. What he means is he liked to commit fornication. Apparently with two or three, two or three different girls. And he didn't mean drinking. He means he likes to get drunk. And he wrestled and wrestled and wrestled, and he did not want to give him up. And I wish I could tell you that he got saved and forsook him that morning. I don't know if he's ever been saved or not. I've not heard that he has been. I appreciate this, though. Can I throw this in? This is aside. I appreciate his honesty and that he did not try to fool himself like, I want that version of Christianity where I still get to get drunk and still go out and commit fornication. He didn't play that little game. I appreciated that. He walked out of my office shaking and crying, but he was not ready to give his life to the Lord. That's what Jesus is talking about. Look at verse 8. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. He didn't do that that morning. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. He was wrestling with it. He knew what he was. It was the Lord and the Lord only. You say, Jeff, would it, somebody have to live perfectly after they, they get saved? No, you cannot live perfectly, but you are to come to the Lord like releasing everything. I'm turning from my sin. I don't know how I'm going to do this, Lord. I've not been able to do it, but I'm turning to you. I'm turning from these things. He couldn't do it that morning. So here's what I've concluded. These are just samples. And, oh, this is in our county. Some in this room have won the battle over this without having to get to these extremes. But if love for alcohol or drugs, or sex, is what is keeping someone from receiving Jesus as Lord. You guys know that our county is full of people. They know the gospel. 
But they also know that that is the step that they're going to have to repent of and forsake and turn to the Lord, as Paul says of the Thessalonians. If love for alcohol, drugs, or sex is what is keeping someone from receiving the Lord as their Savior, then frankly, losing their hands, losing their feet, and losing their eyes would be the greatest blessing in all of their life. Because if you lose your hands, then you can't drink what's going to get you drunk unless someone else supplies it for you. Everyone who loves you should say, I'm not doing that for you. Why do you keep doing it? I can't help it. What if their hands are gone? That'd be a blessing. What if their feet are gone? Then they can't go to the place that would supply that. They can't go to the house of whoredoms or to the place of the forbidden lust. Or if their eyes are gone, they can't see the object of their forbidden lust. That's like the best thing ever. If that's what it took so that they would eventually go, now I am ready to receive Jesus as my Savior. My hands and my feet and my eyes are gone. The sins that I used to love doing, they don't appeal. I can't do them anymore. I'm ready. Is the point of this text that that's what the Lord wants it to take? No. Write down Wearsby's words. So the Lord is using hyperbole. He's not being literal in these steps. He's using hyperbolic language to make a strong point, and it is a strong point. Wearsby offers the following. Jesus was not suggesting that we maim our bodies. This is not literal. If you're here this morning like, I battle with alcoholism. I'm going to go cut my hands off. That's not going to fix the problem. Why? Because Wearsby's correct. He says, Jesus was not suggesting that we maim our bodies for harming our physical bodies can never change the spiritual condition of our hearts. Rather, Jesus is instructing us to perform spiritual surgery on ourselves and remove whatever it is that causes us to stumble. That's what the Lord's calling us to. After you've written that note, take your Bible, look at verse 8, because I'm noticing two principles at verse 8a and verse 9a. There's two, it's one principle, it's just stated slightly different in each one. Try to really ask yourself, what is the timeless principle? Verse 8a, what is the timeless principle? And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Verse 9a, if your eye causes you to sin... Tear it out and throw it away. If your hand or foot or if your eye, cut it off, tear it out, throw it away. Here's the lesson. Don't let any sin distance you from God. Unsaved person. If you're an unsaved person this morning, you've never given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. You've never trusted him as as your Savior. If it's because of some sin, then you're letting that sin create distance, eternal distance between you and the Lord Jesus. If you're a Christian and you're battling some specific sin and it's still you're letting it have victory over you, then you're letting it cause distance between you and the Savior. Now, the verse 8b, do you see that? 8b applies it very specifically to unsaved people because it talks about the eternal hell. Verse 9b applies it to unsaved people because it talks about the hell of fire. But the principle applies to both. So I'm going to give you a series of things that are actually a repeat from Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says almost the same thing as he says here in verses 8 and 9. I went back and I looked at that and I thought, you know what, Jeff? I hate to repeat the same things and you guys don't think I'm lazy, but at the end of the day, I'm like, those literally are the five steps that help people have victory over sin. And it applies to Christians. So before I give them, let's get it right in our mind. You ready? An unsaved person is not ready to apply these five steps 
An unsaved person needs to just forsake of their sin, literally with an attitude of like, Lord, I don't know how I'm going to get victory over these things, whether it be women and drinking or drugs or greed or whatever it is, anger, whatever it is that's keeping you back. And this person just comes to the Lord like, I have no idea. All I know is I'm spiritually bankrupt. You're going to have to do something. I've never been able to do it. And then when they become a born-again believer, true Christian, then they could apply these Five proven strategies for a Christian to have victory. Is your sin that you're battling, is it under the light? Do you have it there? Keep it in mind, and let's go after it. You say, Jeff, is there any hope for me? I'm a Christian, but this thing's been whipping me for years. Yes, there is. Five things. Write them down. Number one, feed your spirit. How do I get victory? Feed your spirit. What does that mean? Look at Psalm 119. Actually, it'll be on the screen. You're writing down that note. Feed your spirit. If you're a Christian, feed your spirit. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, how can a young man keep his way pure? How can a young man keep his way pure? I want to keep it pure. How can I do that? I'm struggling to do that. The Bible says by guarding it, guarding your way, your life, by guarding it according to your word. You see that? Then he says, with my whole heart, I seek you. You have to do this. If you want to have a clean life, to keep your life pure, you must guard your life according to God's word, and you must with your whole heart seek him. With my whole heart, I seek you. Like you, Lord, will get my full attention. And then he says, let me not wander from your commandments. How can I have victory in my life over this specific sin? Verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So here's the idea. You must spend daily time with the Lord. You say, Jeff, how can I get victory? If you're getting whipped, it's because your soul, your spirit, your spirit is weak. You say, Jeff, why couldn't an unsaved person do this? You have a body, a soul, and a spirit. But your spirit is born dead. You're born dead. When you get born again, your spirit is made alive. You are now a whole person. Just as we get hungry, fear physically, and we must feed our body with physical food. Now your spirit is alive. You must feed your spirit the Word of God and seeking God with your whole heart. You must have this relationship with the Lord in prayer. Literally, prayer and the Word of God is spirit food. You've got to keep your spirit strong. That's the first thing. Number two, rely on the Holy Spirit. So number one, Get your spirit robust by daily time with the Lord, learning how to pray, learning how to have a true relationship with the Lord, spending time in his word, literally memorizing the word of God, hiding it in your heart. Second step, guarantee if you'll go home and apply these five things this coming week, you'll have victory this week. Verse 6, chapter six, uh, Galatians, flip over to Galatians. I want you to turn there just for a moment. Flip to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Here's the second of what I would say. Number one, keep your spirit well-fed and strong daily. Keep short accounts with God. Often confess your sin. Be memorizing the Word of God. Just let, let it just keep building you up, layer upon layer of the Word of God. Say, I want victory over this sin. Great. Galatians 5, look at verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit. That means the Holy Spirit that's in all Christians. Walk, not just, not just walk with the Holy Spirit. Like, let him empower your walk. Walk by the Spirit, and there's a promise. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's not me. 
The Word of God says, if you, Christian, unsafe person can't do this, unsafe person doesn't have the Holy Spirit, but a believer, if you'll walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You can't because you're walking by the Spirit. But there is a battle that's going on. Verse 17 says, for the desires of the flesh, that's the old Jeff Bartlett. That's the old you that still wants to sin. It still calls. And this world around us is constantly appealing and throwing lures at us, trying to, yes, come over here and do that. And my old flesh loves that. So verse 17 says, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. Spirit's in me, the Holy Spirit. And the desires of my flesh are constantly batting against the Holy Spirit. But the good news, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. So the Holy Spirit in me is like, I don't like that sin. My old nature, but I still like sin. There's this constant battle. He says, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. The old you wants to commit sin. The Holy Spirit will not let you wallow in sin. But the Holy Spirit, who wants us to live godly and holy, always is in a battle with the old flesh. So the answer is, walk by the Spirit. If you will be feeding your soul, Learn to walk moment by moment. Uh-oh. There comes that temptation. It's that one that always gets me. That's mine. That's mine. That's mine right there. Walk by the Spirit. Holy Spirit, what do you want? Learn what he sounds like. Talk to him. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to think? Where do, you, do I need to go? What do I need to do? How do you want me to feel? What do you want me to say? What do you want me to do and not do? Like literally in the moment, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Number three. I can't teach this one. So I'm just going to throw it out, and you're going to have to go dig. And you can go back to an old series of messages on the website. Understand Romans 6. That is a key thing to have victory over sin. Understand Romans 6. I put three words on your handout. You see them? They're on the screen. You say, Jeff, I'm getting whipped by this same specific sin. Here's your words. You need to know certain things. You need to know, and if you'll study Romans 6, in the early part of the chapter particularly, here's what you'll find, that like we talked about in baptism, when you died in Christ and was buried in Christ and rose again in Christ, spiritually that means where the law used to be your master and even sin was your master, you're no longer gauged and measured by the law anymore and sin that tempts you. There are Christians in this room who regularly lose to sin and sin acts like their slave master You're letting it. Romans 6 says you don't have to let it. You have the victory over it. You're its boss. Sin is no longer your boss. Do you know that? Second word is consider. You can have all the knowledge in the world. You can have all the knowledge you want. But if in the moment of temptation, you don't stop and like consider it to be so, you're not my boss. Literally, I I tell people, talk to your sin. You're not my boss. I don't have to do that. Before I had to obey you, now I do not. You must consider it to be so. And then the third is be so busy. You say, mine's my eyes. That's my problem, my eyes. Be so busy presenting your eyes as instruments of righteousness that you don't have time to give them as instruments of unrighteousness. The fourth thing, arm yourself with specific scriptures. Arm yourself with specific scriptures. I often quote Ran Hummel here, and I'm going to shorten his quote that I've used several times, but please hear it. In multiple books that he's written, he has the same opening, and I'm condensing it and leaving a few words out for effect. He's so right when he offers the following. He has books on anger and fear and lust. He says meditation is essential for anyone who desires to stay pure. 
He says, many of the passages that deal with sins, we've read. We've read them. But we've not thought about them in a way that impacts our hearts. This is such a key line. What God has already given us in his written word are the very words he would speak to us if we were in a one-on-one counseling situation. Oh, if I could just have Jesus, if I could just meet with Jesus just once a week and have him be my counselor, I think I could get victory over this sin. (laughs) Hummel's right. The words he has in here are the same words that he was used in a one-on-one situation. Learn those words. Learn the specific passages that go with the specific temptation that you are dealing with. They're in the Word of God. Learn them. Rehearse them. Bring them forward. Arm yourself with specific scriptures. And then lastly of this list is learn to identify and remove your triggers. And that takes us back to Matthew 18. Learn to identify and remove your triggers. Matthew 18, look back at verse 8. If your hand causes you to sin, what does that stand for? That stands for something. Your hand stands for something that you what? Simple, two two letters. Something that you do. If your hand, your hand causes you to sin, oh, my hand represents something that I do. And then he says, if your foot causes you to sin, my foot represents somewhere you go. That's somewhere I go. So I need to be paying attention. Is there something I do? Is there somewhere I go? And then he says, if you're I, well, that means something or someone that you, is there something or someone that you see that all the time leads you into sin? Is there somewhere that you go that regularly leads you into sin? And is there something that you regularly do that leads you into sin? Take this note. Verses 8 and 9, these verses call for us to be aware of the things in our life that regularly trip us up. Be aware of the things in our life. Again, a while ago, I used this stand, and it was in the way. If I preached up here week after week after week, and that thing was always in the way, then I need to have some sense. I need like, this thing is in the way. i got to move it out of the way. It is a stumbling block to me. Continue. These verses call for us to be aware of the things in our life that regularly trip us up to sin. There's a key line. We rarely go from spiritual, walking with the Lord, to carnal in one step. Rarely do we go from spiritual, carnal, one step. And I was walking with the Lord, and then bam, just fell right into sin. Rarely does that happen. Bill Perkins writes the following. He says, a ritual is a practice or pattern of behavior regularly performed in a set manner. This is what you need to watch for. A ritual is a practice or pattern of behavior regularly performed in a set manner. He writes, we tend to ritualize those behaviors that excite us. And writing to men in a book of, I think it's called Six Battles Every Man Must Win, he says, nothing is more important for a man who wants to win the battle for his heart than identifying the rituals that precede an episode of acting out sin. So your sin that you battle with, some of you are like, I don't have one. Most of you are like, oh, I've got it under the lamp. Here's the question. What specific acts typically precede you committing that sin? What specific things? You see, your ritual, your pattern, your trigger may be, if you look at your life and observe, it may be this simple. Here's what I found out. When that person is near, that's when I sin. Or when that person is gone, when that person or those people are gone, I fall into sin. That's a lot of young people. Mom and dad are gone. That's when they fall into sin. For some people, it's like when that person's near, I fall into sin. It may be this. 
there's a certain place. There's a certain place that you go. It's just inevitable. Like, that's where it happens, right there, all the time. Can you avoid that place? Is it a certain time of the day? Is it a certain activity that may even seem so insignificant? It's like just part of the day. You have to do this. But is there, is there something that you're like, I'm noticing now when I do that activity, which of itself is not sinful, before long I'm committing the sin. Then you need to be aware that you're heading into the activity and have your guard up walking by the Spirit, feeding, quoting specific passages. Identify the rituals. Here's the last thought I want you to write before, uh, for the second point. It's going to be the simplest note you've ever, you've ever read. And you're going to say, Jeff, that's ridiculous. Simplest note you're going to take in months, but very few people want to do it. Here it is. If you know something in your life regularly causes you to sin, then get rid of it. <laughs> Even if it seems important. Is that the simplest thing in the world? You say, Jeff, what you got for us this morning? Here's what I've got. Ruthlessly go after your own sin. Don't be a stumbling block to other people. Don't be a source of temptation. When it comes to your own sin, ruthlessly get it out. Like, spell it down more clear. If you, as you're observing, this is calling us to observe, as you're looking at your life, if you know something in your life regularly causes you to sin, then get rid of it, even if it seems important. If there's somebody may have to do this. You're like, Jeff, I've narrowed it down. It's my job. You're, there's some people's job caused them to sin. Their job caused them to sin. You need to get a different job. i got to pay the bill. Get a different job. Ruthlessly. As, Wiers as Wiersbe says, don't taper off, cut off. You may have to get a different job. It may be this person that you date. It just it isn't working. And if this person that you're dating just constantly leads you into sin, then you need to stop dating that person. You may have a person you think, we're friends. we got a lot in common. But if, if they lead you, being around them leads you into sin, they're not your friend. And, of course, the big one is technology. If something is in your life and it regularly causes you to sin, get rid of it even if it seems important. Many people think you just can't have a full life in 2021 and not have large doses of technology. Is that true? I would say, no, it is not true. Jeff, are you preaching against technology? I'm not preaching against technology. I'm saying there may be some people here this morning or listening who you cannot have an abundant Christian life with large doses of technology or with any doses of technology in the right form. You say, Jeff, what do you mean? It could be as simple as cable television. Can I narrow it down? It could be as simple as cable television and a news channel that you watch. You need to be observant. I'm talking to people right now, and you're not going to like what I'm saying. But if you watch a news channel, and five minutes in, or 30 minutes in, or like some of you, it stays on so much, its emblem is literally in, sketched into your screen. When you try to go to another channel, that, that thing, its emblem is still on the screen very faintly. I don't care what channel it is. If it leads you to live like this, I've got new material. Cut it off. Get rid of it. Throw it away. Save that money. Save your time. No, but Jeff, I got to say, I got to fight the battle. I got to stay informed. If it's leaving you anxious and sinfully angry, cut it off. Social media. If it leaves you jealous and angry and anxious, cut it off. If your little pastime is 
looking on YouTube and just surfing around. Oh, what cute little videos. If it leads you to lust and anger and the list goes on, get rid of it. If Netflix, if you can't handle it and it leads you to lust and all the other things that I've just mentioned, cut it off. If having the internet at your disposal leaves you literally financially in debt because you can, look, I don't have to go out. They bring it right to my door. I can't pay my bills. Cut it off. Get rid of the technology. No, Jeff, you can't live in 2021 without tech. Yes, you can. You may not be able to live with it. Number three. Lastly, and I'll go as fast as I can here. Vivid comparisons of now and eternity. That's what I'm looking at. Vivid comparisons of now and eternity. There's a comparison going on. And this is probably as important as the other two, if not more so. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 has gripped me this week. The Almighty, all-knowing God of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. That's graphic. You ought to go home and read that verse and just slowly picture it. Don't just picture the final. Can we have that picture? Do we have the photo of... Say, so what's this mean? Look at that. That's a millstone. That's a great millstone. The bottom part's called the lower rock of a millstone, and that, the, the, the round one that's upright, that's an upper millstone. It's so heavy that this donkey has to turn it, so they'll throw the wheat in that trough, and they'll let that donkey go around and around, and the weight of that millstone will end up crushing the wheat, and eventually you can make flour. I don't know how the whole process. That's the idea that the Lord has in mind. So I want you to go home at some point today. Here's, here's what the Lord's trying to get something across to us. I want you to picture not a little rowboat, because that would not handle that. You're talking about a kind of a boat that, guys, I'm telling you, you ought to go home and picture this. I don't have the words to do it. You, you have to feel it. Picture that right there on a fairly large boat of the ancient times. Let's say it has a crew of 20, 25 members, and they're rowing out. Maybe they have some sails, but they're rowing out into the Mediterranean Sea. And there's a man on board whose hands are tied and his feet are tied. And he is screaming and begging because he knows what's happening. As he's going, he's looking at the dark water of the Mediterranean Sea. And he knows he's headed to the depths. He is begging and pleading, please, I'll do anything. Please don't do, please don't do this. And they just keep rowing out. And they're rowing out. And the guy's on that side. And they're going, where are they going? They're going out to the deep. Do you know how deep the Mediterranean Sea is? 17,000 feet. 17,000 feet. They get to the depths of the sea. This man is strapped to that. And then these men start getting these poles, one, two, three, and they push to the edge, and the boat starts leaning a little bit. The man is screaming, pleading, and eventually it goes over. 17,000 feet. You say, how long? Does, I don't know. I'm sure he doesn't drown. His lungs burst. His body's going to burst, and that's where his body's going to end up, at the bottom of the ocean. Jesus says 6B is better than 6A. Do not cause God's people to sin with your life. It'd be better to do that. Don't do it. Don't be that person. I had this note earlier. I'm going to give it to you again more forcefully. 
Actually, more informatively, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better. I propose to you again that whoever refers to believers and unbelievers. And I read it over and over, and I was like, I'm missing something. And I think the Lord gave me some insight on this verse. Write this down. I believe it talks to believers and unbelievers alike because it subtly alludes to upcoming degrees of eternal reward and upcoming degrees of eternal punishment. That's why he says it's better for them to go ahead and die such a terrifying, horrifying death. I can think of a lot of ways to die that's a lot better than verse 6b. I do not want to die that way. I looked up 17,000 feet a year and a half ago. I was in the Mediterranean Sea on a boat, and I looked at 17,000 feet, and I'm like, what in the world am I doing in the Mediterranean Sea? 17,000 feet? you kidding? There are people who have died. 17, this was an ancient form of punishment. The Romans used it. The Jews never did. You say, Jeff, hold on. Time out. What do you mean it's the Lord's alluding to upcoming degrees of reward and punishment? Pay attention. Please, I want you to, if you've not gotten anything I've said, I want you to get this. Let me just read it. But listen. If this person in verse 6 is a lost person, the one who had that millstone, if they are a lost person, they're going to spend eternity in hell no matter what anyway. We would think, hold on, if they're lost, then the last thing you'd want to do is die. You're going to hell anyway, then you just need to make it Get the best and live the longest you possibly can. But the Lord says, no, it would be better to go ahead and die a tragic, horrible death now and go ahead on to hell. And we're like, how is that possible? How is that the right kind of thinking? Here's why. Because the added degrees of torment multiplied by eternity means that they will very quickly make up the difference of a few years or decades and the horrifying death. Let me say it a different way. Watch. If I'm living here a sinful life that leads God's people into sin, whether I'm, whether in this case a lost person, this lost person's headed to hell, they're better to go ahead, even if they're like 20, 30, and otherwise they would have lived decades later, go ahead and die now before you have a chance to live more of your life in horrible, wicked sin, because when you get to eternity in judgment, Hell will be bad for everyone, but it will be especially bad for you. So let's just use number. If hell for the normal person is on a 10,000 scale of torments, which is horrifying, if you live longer and you end up getting to a 23,000 scale of punishment, then in no time the difference you had in your little life on earth, that's gone. And the horrifying death of a millstone, 17,000 feet, that's nothing compared to hell. That's a moment. That's better. At least you stopped sinning so much and you just went ahead and hell. For eternity is a long time to have higher degree of punishment. Say, so, hey, hey, hang on, Jeff. You said this also represents a Christian. Oh, yeah. If we want to look at this person as a Christian, Jesus says it's better for them to have the tragic death go on to heaven than to continue living a life, even as a Christian, that's a source of temptation to their brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? Because the saved but sinful living Christian is losing their rewards. 
You're losing your reward. Guys, I've said over and over, I want to test you. I know, I see that clock. Somebody break that thing. Um, this life has two advantages for a Christian. Do y'all remember what they are? This is our one chance to live by, say it, faith. This is your one shot to live by faith. This is your one chance to please God by living by faith in his word about what he says about the future. The other advantage of this life is this is your one shot to lead people to Christ. The person we're talking about is doing neither one of those things. They're not pleasing God and living a life of faith, and they're not leading anyone to the Lord. They're leading people away from the Lord. So it would be better for them to go ahead and die a horrible death now than to continue to lose their reward. Not going to lose their salvation. And by the way, that's what you find in the Word of God. Christians who just try to wallow in sin, they die. They get killed. God does them a favor. It would be better to die a horrible death. Now close with these thoughts. None of us wants to live our life without our hands, without our feet, and without our eyes. None of us wants to die by being attached to a millstone and thrown into the depth of the sea. Listen carefully. Jesus promises you would rather have all of that happen than to live your life here leading other Christians into sin. And you especially would rather live all of those horrible things in this life than to die without Christ and go to hell for eternity. You would much rather do that. Ultimately, what Christ is telling us this morning is anything, anything we think is catastrophic, it's the worst thing ever, is actually the best thing for us if that's what it takes to draw us to Christ and to get us closer to Him. I've said it many times. If someone gets cancer and their cancer wakes them up and makes them realize I'm dying and it causes them to really listen to the gospel and believe in Jesus, cancer was the best thing for them. That's what this text is teaching. So, Jeff, what you said a while ago, it's better for them to go ahead and die. You better, no one better walk out of here and think some crazy thought. I guess the Lord's saying we should just commit suicide then. No. This is a plead. This is a warning and a sympathetic plea. Turn from your sin. Don't go commit suicide. Turn from your sin. Live to the Lord. Live by faith. Please him and point people to Christ. Why is this important? Literally, I'm finishing with your last note from J.C. Ryle. He says, there is a place of unspeakable misery in the world to come to which all who die impenitent and unbelieving must ultimately be consigned. He said, well, Jeff, I just don't believe in the hell stuff. He's correct when he writes your note. The same sure word which holds out heaven to all who repent and are converted declares plainly that there will be a hell for the ungodly. Oh, Jeff, you're not one of those Bible preachers that takes hell literally. Absolutely I do. Why? The God of love and mercy is also a God of justice. He proved it. He gave us a little insight in the flood and in Sodom and Gomorrah. Guys, if God would do that against sin, you'd better know that he will do the other concerning eternal hell. And then to finish the quote, Ryle is so right. He says, no, let this sink in. No lips have ever spoken more clearly about hell as those of Christ himself. Jesus talks more about hell than Paul, John, Peter combined. Jesus is uniquely qualified to talk and compare this life and the next life. And here's what I'll promise you. Every person who's in hell right now agrees with what Jesus is saying. 
they agree 100%. They know, like, the worst thing on earth is nothing compared to where that. They would love to be where someone listening right now, they would love to be where you're at because you have a chance. Maybe you're here, you're like, I'm wrestling with this certain sin. I don't know that I want to give it up. You would be better off giving that up and being plunged 17,000 feet into the water connected to a millstone with no hands and no feet, no eyes in this life. Forsake your sin and turn to Christ. That's the message. Would you bow your heads just for a moment? Heads bowed, eyes closed. I'm going to ask no one looking around, please. Because I'm going to ask, if, how far do I need to go in this this morning? I'm wondering, is there anyone this morning that has the courage to lift your hand if the following is true of you? So I'm going to ask you this question. Is there anyone here this morning that you're like that young man in his tw early 20s who was in my office and you're like, Jeff, I'll just shoot straight with you. I've heard the gospel over and over. I know that it's about putting my faith in Jesus. But I also know that if I do that, Jesus is going to come into my life and he's going to change it. And I'm not ready to give up some certain sin. I've struggled with that. I hear you. I hear other people. I know I need to. But to this day, I have yet to choose to put my faith in Christ and repent of my sin. Would you just be honest enough? I'm, I'm, and I want you to have courage enough to hold it up where I can see it. And if no one raised their hand, I see, amen, I see one. Anybody else? You're like, I have heard the gospel, but there's been a certain sin that has been holding me back. And because of that, I've been refusing to trust Jesus as my Savior. Anyone else? Would you raise your hand? If someone's watching online, then inwardly, if that's you, you need to be agreeing with this. Young man, would you like to talk with me or would you like me to lead you right now? Heads bowed, eyes closed, no one looking around. Can we talk after church or do you say thank you? Christians, let me talk to you for a moment. Jesus teaches life in heaven is so far better than you think. Go ahead and live now like you'll be glad that you lived then. Christians, I'm going to invite you right now. You say, Jeff, I'm saved. I'm on my way to heaven. But there is something in my life, and I think I've been leading other Christians down the wrong road. And, man, I don't, I don't want verse 6b. I want, I want to turn. If that is you, identify the sin. And I'm going to invite you this week to really start investing in feeding your spirit and learning what it means to rely on the Holy Ghost. And I want to invite you, start equipping yourself with an understanding of Romans 6 and specific passages of Scripture. But would you just look at your life and start seeing, where am I when this happens? What happens before my particular sin? What's the scene? Is there certain people around or gone? Do I need to make some tough decisions and cut off some things out of my life? I'm going to ask you to be ruthless in that. Don't let any sin allow. Cut it off. Cast it from you. Perform spiritual surgery with the help of the Holy Spirit. Grace Field is closing prayer this morning. Father, Lord, this is not an easy passage. Your son's very graphic today, very graphic. 
very eye-opening. It's a slap in our face because we just live in life. Lord, I pray that you'd wake us up, that we would not be ones that tempt your people to sin. Father, I pray that we would not be ones that allow any sin to keep us from you. No Christian doing that, but Lord, especially no unsaved person. Lord, may they not choose their sin. May they forsake it and run to Jesus. We know you save when we run to you. So Lord, I commit these, my brothers and sisters, Lord, I commit this young man. I pray that you will have perfect liberty in our speaking. Lord, would you give him faith? I pray, have your will there. Lord, anyone listening online, if they need to contact us, may they do that as well. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for coming.